I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is actor, producer, author, and activist Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie's career has spanned multiple genres in both television and film, including the role of Laurie Strode in the Halloween series. Her comedies include Trading Places, A Fish Called Wanda, and Freaky Friday. She won her first Golden Globe for her work on ABC's Anything But Love, a second for her role in James Cameron's True Lies opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger, and her recent work includes the TV shows Scream Queens and the movies Knives Out, and Everything All at Once, for which she received her first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. As we speak today in February 2023, that award ceremony is about three weeks away. So the first thing I want to say is congratulations, good luck, and welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much. Hi, Nick Harcourt. You were like a voice in my ear for, what, a fucking decade or more? Two decades? I've been I've been on the radio in LA for 25 years. 25 years. Okay, a quarter of a century you've been a voice in my ear. And so I uh I've always appreciated you very much. Well, I appreciate you too and thank you so much for spending a little time with me in the middle of what is no doubt a whirlwind moment for you. I want to ask you about uh, everything all at once and and your role as Deirdre Bodirdra. But but first up, it is the movies after all. Did Halloween really end? Well, did you see the last installment? Did you see part three? Saw the end of it, but but it is Hollywood. Yeah, but I mean, that would have to be a reconstitutioning of something that uh, would be hard to imagine. Um, I, you know what? I don't fucking know. And I don't care. And I say I don't care because it's not mine to care. It's I'm not, I don't write them. I don't. I, I executive produce them, but I don't control it. And of course, it's not the end. And of course, they will make more of them because the audiences want them. I don't know what world they will exist in. And I certainly don't know um, what the stories will be. I They may have a whole new Laurie Strode. They could start from the beginning and remake all of them with a different actress as other actresses have played Laurie Strode, when I say I don't care, it means I I am self-contained in the work that I did in the first two, particularly, and then this last trilogy with David Gordon Green, who I felt really brought the story of Michael and Laurie to a gruesome and very satisfying ending for the audiences that love these movies. And beyond that, it's none of my business. We are in a in a world where uh, multiverses are happening all, all over the place, and actually, in the, the movie that you're you're nominated for, mm-hmm. um, you know, they killed James Bond in the last James Bond movie, and we know they're going to find a way to bring him back, right? Well, again, they killed him because they made him human and and beautiful, and there was a really deep, resonant, emotional story to tell. And I was very moved by the work that that Daniel did in that in that grouping of movies. And again, it doesn't matter. You just have to be responsible for what you're responsible for. And I feel like I've honored Laurie Strode. I've honored the fans. I suited up and showed up with every ounce of my being in those movies. And then I went around the world to talk about them. And I'm done. 
And I'm, 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 when I say I'm done, I'm done. And I'm moving forward into other work. And I understand people will always want to talk about them. And that's great. And I'm happy to. But for me, that was my job. And I did it well. And I would like to do other jobs well. And that's where I'm hoping to sort of move on to. I read a tribute. Uh, I read about a tribute to you in the franchise at uh, New York Comic Con last fall. I think Drew Barrymore did the interview, and you were asked yeah. about the end at the end of the character, and you got quite emotional. You were nineteen when you made the first movie. Obviously, forty years later, forty-four, forty-five. Actually, it's forty-five now. You were in seven of those movies, and obviously, as you said, it, it's it's done now. But you know, how do you say goodbye to a character like that? I mean, honestly, I I wept about it. Obviously, at Comic Con or Cinema Con or whatever. The fucking con it was <laughs> i i don't know there you know uh, it was i think it was comic con in new york you know it was a hall of people who love laurie strode and love the movies and love the the way those movies affected their lives and i i received it and i was very moved and very um surprised by how emotional i got and the truth is my entire creative life is directly um, connected to Halloween, which is then directly responsible for the rest of my creative life. And I have honored that moment and that time. And I will always honor that moment in time and always recognize that without Halloween, I don't have the career I have. And yet I also have an opportunity to do other things. And I'm going to with great respect and gratitude to the past, but my future is not going to involve Halloween anymore. And that may bump people and be like, well, you know, bite the hand that feeds you. I'm not biting the hand. I'm shaking it. And I'm saying thank you. And I'm holding the hand. And I'm my hand and yoursing the hand. And I'm feeling it. And then I'm saying goodbye. And then I'm going to move forward. And the truth is, you've done a ton of other stuff. Right. Yes. But this new reboot of these three movies has reignited my connection to it. And I'm happy and proud of that connection. Again, my life would not exist the way it does without those movies. And I will always honor them. But I also have an opportunity and I'm taking the opportunity to do other things. It's also introduced you to a whole new generation of fans as, as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the first time you and I connected in person was when I had twins 20 years ago. Yeah. And when they were about three, you very kindly sent me a, a bunch yeah. of your, your children's books. I sent a text to my daughter last night to tell her that I was going to be talking to you today. And she, she gave me a one-word answer, which was sick. Mm, sweet. I told my son... And he said, she's in my favorite Ghibli movie. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. You touch so many people and so many generations. Yeah. Through your work. And that's, and by the way, that's as, that's as exquisite as anything we could talk about. The idea that I write books for children who then connect up, that I voiced a voice in a Ghibli. I would have, I would do anything to be in one of those movies. And it was a very small part, and I was so thrilled to be in it. And then the miracle of everything everywhere all at once is 
the generational response, the young people that have absolutely been waiting for a movie that speaks to their experience and the experience of their parents and the experience with their parents and their family and the multiverse and the post-COVID realities and the immigrant experience and all of the themes that Everything Everywhere All at Once explores through the brilliance of the Daniels and their vision and their genius and then the interpretations by all the performers, it has absolutely um, brought a young, vibrant group of movie lovers into the theater and into the discussion of movies. And we will look back, you know, in a long time and everything everywhere all at once will be an absolute moment like The Graduate was for many young people when The Graduate came out. This movie has resonated in every aspect, critically, emotionally, financially. It has exploded the multiverse. It has exploded the way of storytelling. It has reinvented storytelling. And all of that is just super, super, for me, fun. And, and I'm 64 years old and people are coming up and it's just so beautiful. How fabulous. I watched it last night. I know you are. A, you are a, like a, you're a Deirdre Bobeardra virgin. You're, <laughs> you're, you're an every E-E-A-A-O virgin. It's so thrilling. Tell me what you thought. Well, it blew my mind, obviously, okay, you know, for, for all the reasons that, that you just said. The surrealism, obviously, the, the multiverse, the immigration experience. But to be quite honest with you, the performances, I think, were what really just blew me away. Everybody in this film is so amazing. I was up late last night uh, and I read a little bit about the movie. And when you were first asked about it, you said yes, because Michelle Yeoh was in it. Totally. So Michelle Yeoh is one of those actresses or actors who you just are in awe of because of their multiversal talents. She is just one of those people. And so when my agent called me and said, there's this weird little movie, it's being made in LA and it stars Michelle Yeoh, I said, yes. And he said, well, no, 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 you have to read it because it's a little out there. And I was like, yeah, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'll right. do it because I'm with her in the movie. He said, well, kind of. And then you're her nemesis. And then, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll t definitely do it because I don't get that opportunity very often. And she is the, she is the direct reason I'm sitting here talking to you about this movie. Um, she's the direct reason that I am having this beautiful moment in my long career, um, getting to go to the Oscars. Um, is because of the partnership with Michelle Yeoh. That relationship and the complexity of it and what we found together as performers really, for me, is why I'm here. You know, um, and I owe it to her and the Daniels, of course, but really, Michelle. It was a pretty quick shoot, wasn't it? It was about eight weeks. 38 days uh, for very little money in Simi Valley, California, right up until the day that COVID shut the world down. And and our last day was the Friday before the Monday of the shutdown. And I think also the only sad thing for me, Nick Harcourt, is that you saw it on a small screen. 
and that the truth of the matter is you can only imagine Everything Everywhere All at Once was one of the first movies in wide release in movie theaters when people were going back to the movies. So for you to see that movie on a big screen, the visual spectacle, the sound, the music, the action, the glory of that movie on a big screen also and to be in an audience where other people are reacting, they're laughing, they're crying, they're in thrall of the movie. It also built that communal response and word of mouth, which catapulted it into this incredible success. So it's also, it, it, it was a movie made for the big screen. They could, have, they could have released that movie a year before on streaming. And it just wouldn't have had the same reaction. Uh, I think the fact that we were all coming out of the pandemic and all of what the pandemic did to us psychologically, emotionally, familially, um, sociologically, like all of those complexities added into the theatrical experience. And so the timing of it is also sort of spectacular. And watching that grow and succeed was fabulous. If you get an opportunity for your listeners, if you get an opportunity, if you get one, to see everything everywhere all at once on a big screen, take the opportunity because it really does deliver on all of the big screen experience stimuli um, that make big screen viewing thrilling. Very quickly back to something you said about the movie and how it will be looked back on because... My honest reaction at the end of it with my partner was we just looked at each other and we both said, that's a moment. That movie is a moment. There's one that comes along every 10 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And it changes the, the way people think about film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I cannot tell you I knew that when we were making it. I knew it was good. I knew it was interesting. I knew it was weird. I didn't know how it would all come together. And what happened is we made the movie and then I dropped off the movie for a while because I only worked a few days at the office and then I came back. And by the end of the movie, we were shooting the sequences at the laundromat, which is really where the, the confluence of all of the story, all of the challenges of the characters, all of the conflicts of the characters get, get resolved. And there's a reunification between James Hong and Tally Mendel and Stephanie Hsu that's beautiful. There's this reunification between uh, James Hong and Michelle Yeoh. There's a reunification between Key and Michelle. And there's a reunification between Deirdre and Evelyn. And all of those reunifications are about love, all of them. Like at the end of the day with all the dildos and all the hot dog fingers, and all of the multiverse, and all the verse jumping, and all of the martial arts, after all is said and done, what the movie is about is love. Human love. Frailties, failures, disappointments, being average, not being all that, just being a regular human being in the grind and hustle of life and an immigrant in the grind and hustle of America. The American dream 
is very rough on immigrants. And it's a movie that acknowledges and respects that truth. It's the truth. And that's when I knew what the movie was about. I didn't know it would be successful, but I knew the movie was about love. And so I, I was thrilled when a year and a half later, I heard it was going to open South by, and I thought, oh, interesting. And then I saw the trailer and the trailer with its clever use of music and sound and rhythm. And then I went like, oh, this is definitely going to be something. Then I heard the score. Hello, Son Lux. It's gorgeous. And this is a life. Just read the lyrics of this is a life. This is a life free from destiny. Not only what we sow, not only what we show. This is a life, every possibility, free from destiny. I choose you and you choose me. Not only what we sow, every space and every time. Not only what we show, that we know. This is a light, many lives that could have been free from entropy, entangled for eternity. Not only hands and toes, not only what we've known. We find this life somehow all right. This is a life, slow and sudden miracles, view of other worlds from our window sills with the weight of eternity at the speed of light. This is a life. This is our life. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, that's the movie. That's the movie in song form. So the, the marriage of all of these um, art forms, editing, music, special effects, acting, costumes, makeup, hair, props, art direction, all of it coming together is this is a life. And that's at the center of the whole thing is what the movie's about. And so it really is something. Good luck on March 12th to everybody. Let's jump into the music. I'm ready, baby. I am, you know me, I'm, you were my music. You were like my music professor for 25 years. Are you kidding? I'm going to ace this test, babe. I'm going to ace it. What is your first musical memory? Lip syncing twisted from Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell and James Taylor were it for me as a teenager. James Taylor was my, my love, and Joni Mitchell was what all my friends and I loved, and we used to lip-sync twisted. I can do it today. I keep ask, waiting for somebody to bring me on to that stupid show, lip-sync battle, because I will slay <laughs> lip-syncing twisted by Joni Mitchell. Well, we're, let, we're letting everybody know now. Um, I'll only do it for charity, so... Just if you're going to have me, we're going to give money to charity. Anyway, that is really like my, I mean, besides like build me a buttercup and sugar, sugar, which were, I'm born and raised in the seventies. So, you know, build me a buttercup and sugar, sugar and the Archies and, you know, David Cassidy and like all of that was fine. But then as soon as I kind of could create my own real sense 
of what I liked. Joni Mitchell and James Taylor were it. And then as I grew, Ricky Lee Jones stepped in. And that to me was this, the little beginning of loving jazz and her, I mean, I loved, I was obsessed by Ricky Lee Jones. In fact, I went to a Ricky Lee Jones concert for my bachelorette party at the Wiltern. What was the first music that you bought with your own money? Probably some Ricky Lee Jones music, maybe the magazine. Um, like by that point, I was living on my own. I also loved Linda Ronstadt and Heart Like a Wheel was also very important to me. It may have been Heart Like a Wheel because I was living alone. I remember in my first apartment in the Valley, just playing Heart Like a Wheel over and over again. It's funny, I can, I can chart all my life with music. So when I went to college, it was Boston. Uh, when I lived alone, it was uh, Heart Like a Wheel, uh, my first thing. And then, and then Ricky, Ricky was a very big influence to me. You talked about seeing her at, at, at the Wilton. Let's talk about live music. And what was the first concert that you went to? Uh, I went to Jethro Tull, I think at the Forum. And uh, the best live music I ever heard was Alanis Morissette at the... Um, at uh, the Greek theater, she sang a song a cappella at the end in that night air, in that venue was that it was, you know, transformative. Um, I'm not fond of live music for one reason only, and this is my beef. And if this is my soapbox, I'm going to get up on it and throw it out there to the world. Do it. I go to bed early. I don't understand. You get up early. I get up really early, but yeah. I also don't understand why don't they do matinees? Why? Why doesn't you too do a matinee? Why don't any great artists do matinees for people like me who would love to go and hear them live 9.45 at night? I've been asleep three hours by 9.45 and then I'm just miserable. I saw Adele. At night, I left halfway through because I just wanted to go to sleep. I don't care how great the concert is. I want to go to bed. So that's my beef. That's my soapbox. Um, yeah. I will tell you one special live moment that will stay with me forever. I was shooting a movie in Ireland, and there was an Eminem concert at a festival and a group of people were going together on like a party bus. Mm. And we were going to hear them. And John Borman and his wife, Isabella, at the time, his wife, Isabella, who were friends, and I was staying with them, invited me. And we went to the U2 manager's place, and Sinead O'Connor was there. Mm. And by the way, I also remember that Sinead O'Connor live concert um, at the Wiltern. That was uh, the um, uh, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got album, the, the big, incredible album. And I remember that music. I remember that opening song and thinking, oh, my fucking God, that's amazing. So I, I do remember that. But we were in Ireland and we were at 
I think it's called the McGinnises. Paul McGinnis. Yeah. Paul McGinnis. We were at his house and they were rebuilding some like rectory on the property. And it was under construction. And it was this big empty space that was recently plastered. It had scaffolding up. And somehow I ended up getting a tour of the property and Sinead went into that rectory and she climbed up the ladder to the little loft and she started to sing. And maybe there were two people in the room, maybe. And I just stood there and listened to that voice in this beautiful, empty, it felt like a chapel. That was extraordinary. The Eminem concert, who I'm a big fan of, but the Eminem concert was, you know, more of, it was a concert at a, at a festival. So it was muddy and wet and gross. And Mary, uh, I think um, um, Marianne Faithful was with us. Wow. You know, it was a, I have photos, you know, it was a thing. Yeah. But um, hearing Sinead sing by herself in this chapel, on this property was beautiful. When I, when I first came to, to the U.S. in 1988, I, I met a girl who, who actually became my wife, but that's another story. Um, and she played me The Lion and the Cobra, which was oh. Sinead's debut album since yeah. 1988. Yeah. Unbelievable. What a, what a way to arrive. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about dancing? What, what do you listen to when you want to dance? So I'm, I'm a very good girl. Even though I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, I was a very controlled and very good one. Um, I'm not, and I'm a dancer. I danced in high school and you know whatever, and I can dance. My the only time I really danced and listened to live music was when T Bone Burnett had an album out called Truth Decay, and he had the old Dave band. He had a band and all the guys were named Dave. And they used to play right. at Club Lingerie. And I used to go. And I was a little bit of a groupie, like a really controlled, good girl groupie. Like I wasn't sleeping with any of the guys. But I was a fan and I would go early and I would get a table and I'd have, you know what I mean? And then they'd come out and play and I used to dance at Club Lingerie. And that was like my, you know, all the people who, who've told stories about their lives on the Sunset Strip and at the Whiskey and, mm. you know, the Troubadour and all the rest of it. My big bad girl moment was uh, becoming a groupie for T-Bone Burnett and the All Dave Band and sort of obsessed with the Truth Decay album. And uh, I went to Club Lingerie and danced a lot. I will tell you this, although I went to the Troubadour to hear concerts, of course, um, there was a movie that Lou Adler directed that Diane Lane ultimately did the lead of. Mm. Um, I think about like a punk band or something. And I auditioned for it. And the audition was to lip sync um, live on stage at the Troubadour. Wow a song, right? And at the time I was obsessed with Susie Quattro. Um, I showed up in a pair of like shiny leggings 
and a t-shirt that said Anita Bryant sucks. And I put 48 Crash and Glycerin Queen together on a tape without a break because you had to bring your music on a cassette sure. tape. Yeah. And I knew that if there wasn't a break, they'd let me do both. Smart. I never had more fun in my life than lip syncing Susie Quattro, pretending to be a punk rock singer on stage at the Troubadour. And I, I remember at the end of it, I threw the mic down on the stage and just walked off. I knew I wasn't going to get the part. I knew they weren't going to give me the part. But that was my favorite thing I ever got to do as an audition was to lip sync Susie Quattro on stage at the Troubadour. I'd love to see that audition. Type. Oh, well, yeah. I don't think. Well, uh, yeah. So would I. What do you what do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Nancy Griffith. Bette Midler or Nancy Griffith. Bette Midler can drop me in, into a puddle. Uh, Nancy Griffith, it's a hard life wherever you go. Absolutely wrecks me because it's it's about how hard life is for everybody. And I can I can relate to it and it's so beautiful. I was so sad when she died last year. Yeah. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, it's a horrible question. But if somebody said, look, all the music's going away, pick one, what would it be? Well, I think Mill Worker by James Taylor is the most beautiful song. Also a song about how hard life is. I'm not sure I would want to listen to that for the every day because it would just be so sad and heartbreaking. So then um, um, I would want to listen to We Belong Together by Ricky Lee Jones, something upbeat and joyous. When COVID first hit and we were all locked down, the first day of the reality that I wasn't leaving my house that nobody was coming into my house and uh, I needed to mop my floors. And um, I don't know if you got to watch the 75th birthday celebration that um, Rufus Wainwright and Yorn produced uh, for Joni. Um, and it was a concert, I think at the Wiltern or somewhere. It was a, a concert somewhere uh, in Los Angeles. And Los Lobos did Dreamland with uh, an artist named, hold on, I think it's La Marisol, and they did Dreamland as the opening song of this concert. And I remember I did a video of me mopping my floors with my feet on rags, listening to Dreamland. It's also a joyous, joyous, celebratory, hard life, but beautiful life song. So one of those. That's three, but I know. All right. Talking talking of videos, do you, do you do you have a favorite music video? I do. Turn down for what? And it's because the Daniels made it. So it was always a favorite of mine. I always thought it was incredible and thrilling to watch, and such a great song. So turn down for what is a super favorite of mine. The only and the backup would be when MTV first first, first came on the scene, brand new, 
in rotation were very few music videos. One of them was Jack and Diane. John Mellencamp. And for some reason, because it was the first music video that I can remember, it has always stayed. It, like put, it puts me right back where I was. I want to do a little pickup if, if we can, because the, the first song that you mentioned, I, I don't know who that was by, so. Which song? The, the first video you, you mentioned. Oh, okay, Nick Harcourt. Guess what? Guess what? You got me, Jamie. Okay, so all of the listeners to this podcast right now. <laughs> I'm cutting this part. The man, my auditory professor, my musical professor. Okay, I'll leave it in. Who brought so much music into my life, gave me an education of music, musical influences, your deep, respected love of music. You have just had an epic fail in the middle of your podcast. You're killing me. Because Nick Harcourt didn't know the Little Snake song turned down for what. And I'm going to force you at the end of this podcast to hang up those earphones and sit there and watch Turn Down for What. And then you will realize where everything, everywhere, all at once came from because the Daniels directed it and Daniel Kwan, one of the Daniels, is the star of the music video. And when you see it, Nick Harcourt, you will go, oh, I get it now. And you will go, uh-huh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So ladies, gentlemen, and everything, everywhere, all at once, in between and around, I have bested the professor. <laughs> um, I hope I get a Nick Harcourt t-shirt out of it or something. He's blushing. But he did not know the Lil Snake turned down for what music video. And all y'all who are listening who know it are going to be shaming him in texts and Twitters. You can stop now. No, I'm not going to stop. And you're going to put this into the podcast because I'll listen and all the. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to leave this in. I'm, I'm, I'm suitably I'm suitably chastened and, and embarrassed. And oh, trust me. What? Yes. Do you have YouTube? <laughs> have you heard of YouTube, Nick Harcourt? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm the same age as you. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, when you go to YouTube, just type in the words, turn down for what? And by the way, turn it up and then click full screen and then let your mind explode. I'm completely destroyed. Thank you. You're welcome. Anything else I can help you with here, sir? <laughs> I knew they got their start in music videos, but I didn't know that one. And yeah, moving on. Yes. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a new artist, but something that's new to you. I recently have fallen in love with a group called Salt, which is spelled S-A-U-L-T. And their album, um, I believe it's 11 or 2. It's two bars next to each other. 
Hmm. So that is, um, and let me see if there's a song in particular. Well, I like them all. Uh, Glory is a great, I mean, they're all really great songs, but um, that is um, a favorite now. It's on repeat. Salt, S-A-U-L-T. Is there a, a band or an artist that you love but feel that they perhaps never quite got the break they should have gotten? Spinal Tap. I think they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I do too. You know, I interviewed Harry for this last year and asking what he was doing next. And he was like, well, you know, can't really say right now. And then, of course, I hear there's a Spinal Tap too. So, Well, we'll see. Oh, okay. We can all... Do you have a, a, a musical guilty pleasure or an artist that we might be surprised to know that you like? So Life Husband, the other day, um, you know, I like Django Reinhardt. I like what I call Lucy music. And Lucy music um, is that sort of really, you know, you can imagine Lucy dancing like this. It's mm -hmm. this joyous musical experience and christopher played me an album yesterday called the magic of snoozer quinn and it's happy music it makes me happy it's this incredibly lively very positive music and it's like lucy music and it makes me just go like this so i, I that was a new discovery for me and and I think that's it. We always finish up on this final question, which is, how are you feeling right now? Um, how, Jane, how is Jamie feeling right now? Yeah. Amazing. Just amazing. And I'm allowing it. I've spent, I'm 64. I've spent a lot of time with my hands up, kind of closing my ears. I've, I've, I tried to protect myself as a defense mechanism. I have a very good firewall around me. And this whole everything everywhere all at once, juggernaut, this beautiful tornado of a movie, and all of this beautiful attention for it and for my colleagues and for myself, I'm allowing it. And I'm not saying I'm allowing it out of an ego statement or an ego position. I'm simply saying I'm open. I am leaning in. I am receiving it all. I'm just letting it be joyful and exciting. And it's not about winning shiny things. It's the inclusion in the mainstream of show business for this hurricane of new ideas and that I get to come in on that hurricane, a business I've been involved with since I was very, very young, and that they have welcomed me in with this hurricane of a movie, hurricane of ideas, hurricane of creativity. That's undeniable. Um, I'm leaning into all of it, and it's thrilling. And I know it's not going to last, and I know I'm going to go back to chopping wood and carrying water and being a worker among workers and, you know, hustling, hustling, hustling. But right now I'm in the sweetest spot of receiving and I'm just letting it happen. You know, before we go, I want to, uh, I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to talk well, to me. Of course. I know you've got 
so much going on. But also, you know, you mentioned a little earlier on about being an alcoholic and being in recovery. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not something that I shy away from talking about my own issues with that through the years. And about five or six years ago, I think I was sort of coming back from a, a rough time in my life. And I reached out to a couple of people uh, who I respected and you were one of them. And mm. you took the time, you invited me around for coffee and we sat down for an hour or two and just sort of talked about life and recovery and trying to get better. And that meant the world to me. Mm. And I just want to thank you for that because, you know, not only are you just an amazing entertainer, but I think that you're a very real and true person. And I appreciate the things that you say, not just to me personally, just then, but the things that you put out there in the world around that. And I think it's really important for people who have a platform to tell the truth. Yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And I think we all need to feel connected. I think we all need to feel that we're not terminally unique, that other people are just like us. And the minute you feel community with somebody else, you feel safe. And the bigger the community, the safer you can feel. And recovery is built on one addict talking to another. That's how the whole recovery uh, program works. It's people sharing their experience, strength, and hope. Absolutely. As it relates to alcoholism. And with the accent on hope. And that, to me, is the reason and privilege of talking to people. And when you really love someone, like, I can't say I really love you on the air, because then all sorts of people will get mad. But you know what I'm saying to you, Nick Harcourt. You know I respect you. You know I'm very fond of you. You know I'm grateful to you for being my musical guide through 25 years of listening to you. And except for the fact that you didn't know what turned down for what was. Other than that, (laughs) tiny blemish. It's like a tiny pimple on your entire 25-year career. Other than that, and except for the fact that I think Lil Snake is really feeling very sad that you, Nick Harcourt, didn't move them. Other than that, I think that this is a beautiful thing, and I'm glad we connected, and I'm glad we continue to connect. And um, I'm guaranteeing that the next song, the Nick Harcourt, will play somewhere in the world. It's going to be turned down for what? So turn it up, everybody. Turn it up. I like that you brought that back at the end. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you, Nick. Take good care, everyone. Be safe. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.